invite you to turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke chapter 6, the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, singing that favorite of Miss Cromley's, and I can never sing that hymn without thinking of a particular soloist, um, the gentleman that was in the church in Balamone. And when I was just saved, occasionally this man would sing a solo. (laughs) James might not have had the lowest voice that there is. It wasn't so much the pitch as it was the volume and the resonance. You could feel him singing. It was, it's, it's, it's quite something. Every time I think back, you know, just the, the experience of whenever James would kind of build up the crescendo of the, the chorus of that piece, um, some through the water, and, so, and he would just build it up. And you'd, <laughs> you'd feel like a flood of something was coming over you. You could just feel the power in his voice. I've never, ever experienced anything like it. Not a trained singer, as far as I'm aware, um, not classically trained anyway, but there, there was just a, an extraordinary force in his voice. And it wasn't unpleasant. It wasn't, you know, that kind of volume that puts you off. You think, you know, you need to tone it down a little. It was just <laughs> something else. I never sing that without thinking of James, James Patterson. And he was a faithful servant and a good man. And I haven't spoken to James in many years, but... I can't sing that hymn without thinking of him and the experience that it was the first time uh, hearing him sing a solo. He would sing, he wouldn't really sing in the congregation very often unless he really, really couldn't help himself. And he would always be at the back. And (laughs) you just heard him above everyone. It was quite something. And it's uh, something you could never capture on a, a recording. You'd have to be there. Luke chapter 6 is where we are tonight, and even the favorite hymn fits much with the theme of what we're dealing with tonight as we are looking at verses 22 and 23, but we will read again from verse 20, Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye that men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets." Amen. Ending the reading at verse 26. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's all still our hearts before the Lord.
Our God, we do thank Thee for, for precious memories. Those memories that, even though we, they haven't come to our minds in uh, many a month or a year, that when they do return, they bring back a, a freshness of the experience and a joy. We do thank Thee especially for those memories that come to our minds regarding the saints of old, those that have been faithful, those that have served, those that have ministered to us. Lord, we do praise Thee for that. Help us to be such men and women. Help us to live as to make positive memories and impressions upon those that we meet. Help us, Lord, to do this. Help us to, as McShane put it, I think, live so as to be missed. We pray for grace to do this. Lord, as we consider thy word tonight, we pray for the freshness of the Spirit of God upon the word. We pray that he will carry the truth to the heart. We ask that thou wilt edify thy people and that thou wilt challenge the unconverted. May it please thee to save through thy word, through thine appointed means. Give help then to this preacher and magnify Christ in everything said. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have observed over the past few weeks that our Lord Jesus in the Beatitudes recorded by Luke elevates poverty, hunger, and sorrow. And he elevates them in ways that make no sense to the unregenerate or the unenlightened mind. There's no getting around this. They make no sense. The statements don't make really any sense in relation to the normal experience of men in this life and the ambitions of men and desires of men. And what the Lord reveals is the experience of the new birth. Verse 20, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Here is a poverty that accepts that you have nothing to offer God. That's the sense of the text. A poverty that accepts that you have nothing to offer God. We're told then in verse 21, Blessed are ye that hunger now. Here is a hunger that reflects you need nothing but God. That this is the real need of your soul. That your appetite needs to be directed towards the Lord Himself. And then we are told, Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. This is a morning that admits you're guilty of all that grieves God. You you put it all together, you have a poverty that accepts you have nothing to offer God, a hunger that reflects you need nothing but God, and a mourning that admits you're guilty of all that grieves God. And to such a soul, then, is this blessing, this blessedness, this sense of favor. It's not something the world can come up with, but Christ gives such a hope to those that experience these things. And it is part and parcel of a real work of the Spirit of God upon the heart. In Isaiah 61, you see how the Lord is the one who comforts His people. I'll read just the opening verses. They're very familiar. But my mind was drawn to them again, reading one of the commentaries. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. It's messianic. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. God gives joy amidst what would normally bring sorrow and grief to the heart. And when we come to realize the truths that are presented in these Beatitudes, it is, it is refreshing. It liberates us. It gives a sense of freedom from those things that men are bound by or fearful of. When we truly realize that, that, that we, we are poverty-stricken, that it's not about trying to, to, to measure up to a standard for God, that heaven and the entrance into glory does not depend upon you. You sense the liberty of that. As the Lord proclaims it, as the Lord directs it, as the Lord states it very plainly, you have nothing to offer, simply come to me. When you realize that the real appetite of life is, is not something you're to discover, you're not to roam around and find some little exclusive experience of life that, that is just, just, just for you, that you're, you're wandering around aimlessly trying to figure out what will satisfy me. Your Creator has made it plain. You're to hunger after Himself, hunger after Christ, and if you do so, ye shall be filled. And the morning, once one has come to grips with the gravity of their sin, and the fact that they deserve God's judgment eternally in hell, and they mourn and weep, nothing else can bring that kind of mourning that will be the experience of those that enter into God's hell. We are lifted up from this. It gives garments of praise. It gives joy and peace and contentment. But how does the world react to such people? How does the world respond to those that have entered into these favorable experiences? Do they understand them? Well, we've already said they don't. And we sang the words tonight of Isaac Watts, the two middle verses where he puts forth a very challenging question, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me unto God. Is it? Of course, the answer is a resounding no. In many ways, the West has had a good run. It has been known as the Christian West for some time, but things are changing. Part of the scary aspect of that is that how fast it is changing. That within our lifetimes, we see things coming to pass that, that it's not gradual, it is so rapid Things that wouldn't even be spoken about, discussed, have become commonplace conversation just a matter of decades on. And I think our text tonight 
the verses that we're looking at, obviously they have application to every single Christian, but I think in many ways it has a peculiar application to those that are younger. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. You're living, and God's sparing you, you have a life of continual moral, ethical change. And except there is an unusual revival that changes the very fabric of society at every level, the trajectory we are on will not be stopped. Sometimes you read through the Word of God and, and you are struck by what is reflected. There, there are those occasions, I just finished reading through the book of Judges, if it's been a while since you've read through the book of Judges, well, read through it again. There are events recorded and you stop and you think, how does, this, how does one get to this place? How do individuals get so corrupted? How do they become so numb to a sense of right and wrong? But that's where we are. Every day, society becomes more numb. Numb. Desensitized to the mind of God, to the will of God. So you read certain things and you consider the perspectives of the past and you think it seems so archaic. I can't believe people believed that just 20 years ago. 30 years ago. Can't believe that the laws were what they were just 30, 40, 50 years ago. That what we're rejoicing and celebrating was against the law. Not just uncommon, it was against the law. And you think it's not going to be pushed further? You imagine that whoever is supporting all these changes is going to stop content with where things presently are? No, we, again, unless there is such an awakening, the like of which has hardly ever been known in the history of the world, this is the trajectory we're on. We are headed into a moral chaos that will inevitably result in the absolute destruction of everything that is familiar. That's what's going to happen. And the church, for the most part, is ill prepared. And I'm not sure our young people are really prepared. I talk to you young people. I want you to realize just how serious it is a battle that you're facing. And I want you 
to pay very close attention to the Word of God. You see, the older ones always have, at least if they're walking with God at all, you always have a concern for the next generation. We reflected that last Lord's Day morning. There has to be a concern for the rising generation. But that's not new, and it's not exclusive to the New Testament. It has always been the case. And when you read through the book of Proverbs, there there clearly is this focus, this concern in the heart of the Father for the Son. Before we go any further, turn to Proverbs just for a moment. You'll see this concern. Proverbs chapter 1. I'll just look at a couple of portions with you. Just so the young people realize that Scripture speaks to you. That the Spirit of God is fully aware that you are living constantly under a threat of a world that will not relent in trying to pull you down and destroy you. To make you accept its ways, its values. It will not stop. It will continue to attack you. And if you don't recognize its wily ways, as it were, its deceit. If you don't wake up to what is going on through all the media outlets, through everything that is put in front of you that is not distinctly Christian, the vast majority of it, you, you should, it should be incarcerated just for the, 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 the likelihood that if it doesn't come from the Word of God, it's trying to draw you away. That's where we are. And so, entering into, and again, we, we can read this, oh, that's so many centuries ago, but these are just, these are people, these are people living, parents with the same concerns and desires for their children as any parent in any period of history. Verse 10 of Proverbs 1, My son, if sinners entice thee, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. You have to know that you're being enticed. That's not what it's going to look like. They will be very friendly. They will try to win you over. They will be more appealing to you than those in the church at times. You will have more time for them. They will, they will be able to they carry themselves and speak in such a way that you're drawn out after them. That, that's the default position unless the grace of God preserves you. If they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood, let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause, let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit, We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. He's giving an example. This isn't isn't exclusive, this. It's it's an example of the way they work. It's, It's trying to lure you in, playing on your own selfish desires, your own carnal leanings for profit in your life, to advance in your life. And they're saying, come work with us. This, this is our goal. Uh, we know it's your goal. Work with us. Let us drive at this. And 
the, some of the rules may be bent along the way, but, but they, will, they will argue, they will present the case. They present it in a way that is very, very winning and influential. Verse 15, my son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. Don't even be in the same path as them. Don't walk alongside them. Their feet, verse 16, run to evil and make haste to shed blood. This, you can't be deceived by them. Chapter 2, verse 10 again. When wisdom entereth into thine heart, and this, this is the whole drive, of course. It's, it's, you need wisdom. You're born with a naivety. And wisdom is the only hope for you. When wisdom entereth into thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, discretion shall preserve thee, understanding shall keep thee. Wisdom will preserve your life. How? Verse 12, to deliver thee from the way of the evil man. From the man that speaketh forward things. You, you will discern him as evil. You'll recognize him. Who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Oh, look at that. They leave the paths of uprightness. This is people who are brought up in the truth. They leave the paths of uprightness. We're not talking about people who were born in the paths of, 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 of unrighteousness. Born in an un, ungodly environment. That's not what the text is dealing with. It's dealing with people who were brought into, born into paths of uprightness and they leave them this is the prodigal the backslidden those that may have made profession those that you grew up with and sit beside in Sunday school there they are and they come to maturity and they, they start to drift away and speak of things and try to bring you along with them because no sinner likes to sin on his own Leave paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Who rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked. How they start to like the world and love the world, the ways of the world. Whose ways are crooked and they froward in their paths. To deliver thee, this is what wisdom will do, it will deliver thee from the strange woman. That's not what you'll call her. You'll call her beautiful. That's what you'll call her. You'll call her everything that you've ever desired. Strange woman, strange man matters not, but, but your carnality is drawn out after them. There, there, there's a part of you that can't take your eyes off them. Strange woman, even from the stranger which flattereth with her words. Oh, even better. It's not just a natural attraction there. She actually is reflecting her attraction to you. And she's, a, she's the same as what we've just mentioned. She's not someone who was born in an ungodly environment. Look at it. Verse 17, which forsaketh the guide of her youth. She's forsaken the guide of her youth. Her parents have directed her. She's rejected it. She's had godly counsel all of her days. And they, they, she comes to an age of, of, of autonomy and she decides on another path. But again, she doesn't want to be alone. There you are. You're also brought up in a, in a godly environment. And she starts to flatter you. Look at it. She for, forgetteth the covenant of her God. I may refer to a couple of things. 
her house inclineth unto death, her paths unto the dead. None that go unto her return again, neither take they hold of the paths of life. That thou mayst walk in the way of good men, and keep the paths of the righteous. My point is, young people, that Solomon knew the world in which he lived, and he spoke directly and specifically to his son to preserve, to help, to guide. Because he'd been in the world. He knows how deceitful it is. And there's a natural allurement after it. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. And so we come to our text tonight because it speaks to us of the world. How do they respond to the regenerate? And I've entitled my message simply, The World is No Friend to Grace. The world is no friend to grace. Luke 6 and verse 22 and 23, we want to see first of all here the reaction of the world. How does the world react then to those who know Christ and profess their love for Christ? Blessed are ye when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil. This is how they react. Now in case I fail to say this later, I should just point out right now that not all hatred from the world is the hatred spoken of here. That just because sometimes you are rejected doesn't mean to say this text actually applies to your experience. The Apostle Peter understood that. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, he says, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, no doubt this passage is in his mind, what the Lord had taught and instructed him, and he was there. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Blessed are ye. Peter knew what the Lord had taught. For the spirit of glory and of God rested upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but in your part he is glorified. But let none of you, you professing believers, let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. You can suffer... Because you deserve it. You've been foolish. You've spoken about people in a way that you ought not. You have responded and acted in a way that you should not. This is found among the people of God. And we are not then, when the world reviles us, to begin to say, oh, woe is me. Well, I'm suffering for the Lord's sake. No, you're not. No, you're suffering for your own sins. Even the thief on the cross understood that. Luke 23, when he speaks to the other thief, they're both there suffering for their crimes. Luke 23, verse 40, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, we deserve to be here. We deserve to be in this Roman cross. We receive the due reward of our deeds. We're getting what we deserve. So I just point that out. The Lord's language here is not in relation to those who live a foolish life. If you go around trying to be 
to start fights with people or to be unpleasant to people. And then they start to hate you or despise you. If you live in your place of employment or you work in your place of employment in such a way that, that you're, <laughs> he just he can't work with you. Because there's no leeway, there's no grace, there's no mercy. It's all criticism, pointing out faults, no love, no time for people. And people distance themselves and you think, oh, I'm being cut off because of the, for the cause of Christ. No, you're just not a nice person. That's simple. So that's not what it's dealing with. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you. And when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil. When men shall hate you. There's a sense of inevitability. This is what's going to happen. One may assume that this is going to occur. And you can divide up how they respond to you in three ways. What they feel, what they say, and what they do. What do they feel towards you? Now you're a Christian here tonight. Especially thinking again of the young people, but all of us. But I want the young people to think about this because it's, you get to a certain stage of life, most people get to a certain stage of life somewhat in their more mature years and they, they, they kind of get less, they, they care less about what people think. So it's, it becomes less of a problem, some of these things. Part of it is maturity, part of it is the grace of God. So it does have, I, I'm really thinking, I was thinking much of our young people here because they struggle, they struggle with acceptance, they struggle with the desire to be, have friends and all of that. And I want you to see what Jesus says. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you. This is what the world will feel towards you. They will feel hate. What does it mean by hate? To dislike intensely. To detest, to have an aversion towards. If that is how you're treated, do not be surprised. When simply by being a Christian, people manifest this feeling towards you, do not be shocked or taken aback. What they say, they feel hate. What do they say? Well, you can look at what they say to you and what they say about you. What do they say to you? Well, they reproach. That's what it says. They shall reproach you. That is mock, revile, harshly criticize and insult. They will reproach you. You'll feel that reproach as they mock you for your faith. As they laugh and gather their friends around to laugh because you believe in God. You believe God made the world. And they'll reproach you. What will they say about you? Well, they'll cast out your name as evil. Cast out your name as evil. Has the idea of slandering. Trying to remove your influence from others by tarnishing you. It's like casting out, just like you, the Lord Jesus would cast out a demon to remove its influence. So they cast you out to remove your influence. The influence Christ has appointed you to have as light and salt in the world. They want to cast you out, diminish your influence. This is what they say. They go around behind your back. And what do they do? They separate. Verse 22 says, they shall separate you from their company. 
They will exclude, isolate, set you apart. You're different. Now, now let's just stop there for a minute. You're different. They know it, and so they separate you. This is a package deal. When you were saved, you were separated unto the Lord. You were called out. You're here tonight, part of the church, the called out ones, ecclesia. You're called out. You're no longer in that world, part of that world in relation to its system of thought and animosity towards God. And they know it. They know their kind. Which immediately comes with the challenge, if, if, if the world is comfortable with me, and I am comfortable with the world, and I'm, I'm, I'm not talking here about the fact that every single unbeliever will despise your very presence. I'm not saying that. Don't take it too far. But if you are at ease in every worldly environment... If everyone feels completely at ease in your company, and if they say and do all the things they would say and do if you were not there, they do them anyway even though you are there, then there's something wrong. We'll look at that more a little later. But here's, here's, here's their reaction. This is the reaction of the world. It's not going to be all the time. It's not going to be every time. But when this happens, we should not be surprised. This is an experience that believers have. So, we come secondly then to consider the reason behind the world's hatred. What's the reason behind it? Why? Why would people hate you? Why would they reproach you, cast you out, separate themselves from you? Why would people be like that? We're told at the end of verse 22, it's for the Son of Man's sake. It's for, it's because of your identity with Christ. The world hates Jesus Christ. They hated him 2,000 years ago. They hate him today. It has never been any different. Again, Peter is helpful tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he's quoting here, of course, from the Old Testament, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious. That's how you view Christ. That's your heart toward Christ. He is precious to you. Now again, that, that's, that's expected of the believer. Is Christ precious to you? Do you feel for him? Is your heart after him. Do you, do, do you understand Peter's language that he is precious? But unto them which be disobedient. Here's what Christ is. He's the stone which the builders disallowed. He's the one rejected. Verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient. He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They, 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 there's no sense of his value. They try to cast him off. They try to throw him away. 
That's the stone that is rejected of the builders. This is how the world feels towards Christ. So, the problem then is, their feeling towards you is because of your identity in Christ. In fact, you can look at it a couple of ways. First, it's because it is impossible to be a Christian and not identify with Christ. If they feel this way about the Lord, it is impossible to be a Christian and not identify with Christ. You, when you're saved, you, you get so strongly identified with Christ. This is how people feel. That they so hate the Lord, they will also hate you. This identity is brought very brought out very clearly in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. You have it also in Mark 8 from memory, where Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. So the Lord calls people to so identify with him that they may risk everything. It, it may call you to risk everything. You will lose your life for Him. And if you try to save it, well, you'll truly lose what you're trying to save. But if you're willing to give it all up for Him, you will save your life. You're like the Lord in that sense. You're so identified with Him. You're following Him, taking up the cross, that your life gets lost in His, in His will, and His desire. And so the Lord would say to His disciples, preparing them for the world, in John 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. You cannot be a Christian and not identify with Christ. So that's why they feel as they do towards you. But also, because the world will know you are a Christian. That's implied, isn't it? They will know you're a Christian. Look, at, look again at verse 22. They hate you, separate from you, reproach you, cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. The implication is that they know that you are on His side, that you belong to Him that you are part of his following. They wouldn't feel this way if they didn't know you were a Christian. But they feel this way because you identify with Christ. That begs the question then, does the world know? Have you ever been rejected because you're a Christian on account of the fact that you're a Christian? Have you ever felt uncomfortable in certain company where you, where you believed if you declared yourself to be a Christian, if you showed your hand, so to speak, that all of a sudden it would change everything about the relationship? It's a common experience. That's why I tell young people, anyone in fact, but again, especially the young people going into jobs for the first time and Going into a new environment, new experience. You, you get employed, you get a job. And, and I, <laughs> I learned very quickly. And 
thankful that the Spirit of God prompted in this way, and maybe, maybe someone said it to me, I don't know, but the first job I went into, or the job, first job I was in when I was a Christian, the moment I became a Christian, it wasn't very long before I told everyone that I was a Christian. And the next job I went into when, when I met these new people, or I, there was new people who were employed and would come in, I would tell them at the first opportunity, sitting, having lunch, talking, just freely, talk, who are you, where are you from, what's your name, your family, so on and so forth. And I would say, I would, if there was any opportunity, let them know. Let them know. Put the flag out, I belong to Christ. And it becomes a whole lot easier. You avoid all the awkward conversations about are you going to go drinking with us this weekend? Or are you going to go and do that this weekend? You don't get that. They, they just, okay. <laughs> they get a sense of who you are. You're not witnessing necessarily. You're not at that point where you're explaining the gospel to them. But very often, very often, but simply boldly declaring, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. Will change the relationship immediately. They will know that you're different. And I would encourage you, again, have that kind of courage to state it. But we are living in a world that this will bring many problems. And again, this is why we should be praying for our young people. Because some of the first questions are going to get asked, if they're courageous enough to claim Christ and name Christ, some of the first questions they will ask is, what's your view on homosexuality? What's your view on gender, some aspect of the whole gender discussion? What's your view on abortion? They will come in with the hard questions straight out of the block. Because they're trying to calibrate in, your mind, in their minds where they place you. Are you going to be someone they avoid and despise? Or someone that they can get on with? Because you're one of those liberal Christians. I have no problem with all these views that are held by the world at large. They will not hesitate to ask that on the first day you meet. And I know from personal experience. When you do evangelism, sometimes it's the first thing on the street that they come and ask you about. What's your view on that? They're trying to just categorize you, trying to see what kind of a Christian are you. Are you someone to be respected? Or are you someone to be hated? Like the text. And you... Well, I'm not going into it tonight. But this is, this is what we're facing. This is what our young people are facing. And they need to be prepared. They need to be ready. They need to be able to give answers. They need to be strong. And I say to you young people... I appeal to you like a father to a child. I appeal to you, please, in God's name, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. They will try to just pull you in. Some of your college, some of your planning to head to college, I'm hearing of different ones and they're heading in that direction. You're going to enter into an entirely different circle of friends. And some of the people you meet will not have good intentions. 
telling you that now. Even at Bob Jones. And definitely in other places. They will not have good intentions. We have some young people here who went to universities that are not distinctly Christian. Some of their memories are not so pleasant. You're going into a cesspool. A cesspool. You have no idea. And they will entice you. They will. They will entice you. And everything will be fine. You've been in the church long enough to put on a front. You know what's expected of you. So you go to the... You live at the college and then you come home for whatever holiday breaks are given to you. Come back for Christmas for an extended period. And the discerning parent... That first semester passes, the discerning parent will know if the world is taking your affections. You won't be able to hide it. You can say all the same language and go through all the same behavior just like when you lived at home. But you can't Hide the fact that the world is winning and taking you up in its arms. The world hates Christ. You need to decide whether you're okay with that and you will still stand with Christ and be hated with him or whether you will compromise. Thirdly, the reward for the people of God. The reward for the people of God. We come to verse 23. And we're told, Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. God rewards his people. He does. And often in times when they are persecuted, he rewards them. He comes and comforts them and helps them. I was thinking about Genesis chapter 15 when I was reading this, this past week. And the context of Genesis 15. You have this wonderful text in Genesis 15. Now, Abraham has had to go and rescue Lot and all of his possessions. And in doing so, he had to defeat Kedileomar and all the kings that were on his side. And he wins a tremendous victory. Here is a man who, <laughs> who well prepared himself and those under his care for a world that was at enmity against them. For a world that hated God. And so he, he had them all prepared and trained for battle. But he's just a man. So we come to Genesis 15 verse 1. After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram. You ask the question, why are you afraid? Why would he be afraid? He's just had a tremendous victory in battle. He's gone out there. And accomplished the mission, got Lot back and all of his family and taken all the possessions and, and rescued them all. 
And you would imagine he's rejoicing, but we find him in a condition, in a state of fear. And I, th- I think, I can't say for sure, but I, I think this is the natural response of a man who starts thinking, what now? What if all these people, I've just made a lot of enemies. We've been happily, quietly living, growing my little kingdom, my own little empire here, quietly living in the world, not causing too much of a ruckus. But now I have just made a lot of enemies. Will they pull their resources together? Will they come after us with ten times the, the, the men and manpower? What are going to be the consequences of this victory? And the Lord comes and encourages him. Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield. I am thy shield. And thy exceeding great reward. I think that relates back to, again, the king of Sodom trying to to buy favor with him and encourage Abram to increase his wealth by taking the... the, uh, all the possessions that would begin from the, win- the victory of the warfare. But the Lord comes and says, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I, look, if you've put me first, you've put me first, Abram. I will protect you. I will provide for you. The Lord will always reward and be with those who will suffer and are willing to suffer for the cause of good and right and for God. He will protect and preserve them. But in our text, back to Luke 6, verse 23, there are a few things. First, in this reward, there is present assurance. Present assurance. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. In that day, the day when you're hated and separated from and reproached and cast out as evil, rejoice ye in that day. In that very day, rejoice. Now, it is not easy to do. It is very difficult to rejoice when you have been rejected and despised even by those who do not love Christ. I know from personal experience. But the words of our Lord are to be kept in the heart. He knows our frame And no doubt is fully aware that the vast majority of his people will not always remember this in the moment. And they will wrestle and battle with this, but then the words will come. Then the truth will come from heaven to the soul as a reminder that should you be hated for my sake, should you be rejected for my sake, cast out as evil for my sake, simply because you identify with me, rejoice. Don't let it get you down. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. There's present assurance. In fact, in fact, that persecution is in the hand of God as an instrument in your life. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of a son. And God is using it as an instrument to make you feel and experience just a tiny little bit what your dear Savior experienced for you. 
the gospel settles in, overcomes the fears, encourages the soul. As Paul writes in Philippians 1.29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been given. Just as your faith was given. Your faith was given. God saved you, mercifully intervened in your life, and you rejoice, given by God. But also recognize then the suffering that is given by God. It's not just given to you to believe, but also to suffer for His sake. So there's present assurance. When you go through this, you, you get a sense of, I am the Lord's. The Spirit of God will sanctify the persecution, the experience of persecution, so that you are encouraged by the fact that you identify with Christ. This is part of the suffering of the people of God. Now I know what my Savior felt. When you get down on your knees before God that day, lamenting over how the world has rejected and hated you, and you sob your tears, and a verse like this comes to your soul again, and you begin to rejoice because your Savior who died for you went through similar. And you then, your heart gets lifted up with gratitude. Thank you, Lord. He sanctifies the present experience and makes it a means of assurance to you. There's not only present assurance, there's also future investment. Because, behold, your reward is great in heaven. I don't want to elaborate too much on this, but there will be reward in heaven. You've dealt with that last year somewhat. Everyone will be satisfied in glory. Every single person. Not one believer will have a sense of dissatisfaction or being discontent before the Lord in glory. But some will suffer and some will experience things in such a way that they will, their experience of heaven will be somewhat different than to others. And they will have certain rewards for the sufferings that they endured this side of eternity. I don't want to say too much more than that. But the Lord is basically ensuring, look, there's future investment in this. Do you believe it? Do you believe there's a heaven? Do you believe that there's a hell? Do you believe that how you live right now may impact and influence the life that is to come? Are you so time-bound? This is my concern. So time-bound. We are all so, so influenced by the present. We don't act and live and think and do and respond with eternity in view. And that's a weakness. It makes us very prone to make poor decisions. Present assurance, future investment, historical comfort. There's also historical comfort. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. You're in good company. You're not just in the company of the Lord, you're in the company of those who have gone before. The Old Testament is full of the persecution of the prophets. Think of Elijah's time in 1 Kings 18, verse 4, when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord. Nobadiah took an hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. She was 
killing off the prophets. Jezebel, the wretch that she was. Asa as well. When the seer came and spoke to him, he was wroth with the seer, we're told in Second Chronicles chapter 16, and put him in a prison house, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing. And the man came and told him the truth. He went mad, imprisoned him, had no time for the man who would bring him the word of God. Jeremiah 2, the Lord reveals in verse 10, In vain have I smitten your children, they receive no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. I send you men, and you kill them. Jeremiah had that experience himself, suffering for the cause of truth and righteousness. Jeremiah 20, verse 2, Pasher smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks. And then you have a kind of a, an overview coming near the end of all the the various kings and prior to all going into captivity in Second Chronicles 36. The Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. So Stephen rightly asked in his great sermon in Acts chapter 7, he rightly asked this question, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And this is what the Lord is saying here. You're in good company. Those that hate the Son of Man hate His people you are in good company. So, young people, especially you, how are your feelings toward the world? Do you want to be loved by them? Are you be prepared to be rejected? There is an allure to the world. There is. That's why John has to warn even the people of God. In 1 John 2.15, love not the world. Love not the world. Your natural inclination is to love the world. And no one here, no one here can say, it won't happen to me. I won't take the world over Christ. There was a man who had a great promise, a tremendous servant in the church. His name was Demas. And when the world started to put the pressure on, when they imprisoned the apostle, and death was imminent, and Demas associates with the apostle Paul, Paul has to say, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. It's right there in 2 Timothy 4, when, when Paul, I am ready to be offered. I'm ready to lay down my life as a sacrifice unto Christ, if that be his will. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. There is reward in heaven. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give us in that day. But Demas, Demas hath forsaken me. Demas, Demas, he he sees the persecution and he's not willing to pay the price. He loves the world. He, he, He liked being in the church and serving and perhaps some of the attention that it got to his carnal aspect of his life. But when, when, when it came down to really having to suffer and put the life on the line for Christ, as he warned his people may have to do, when it came to that, he was not willing. He loved the world. He integrated very quickly back into it as a matter of self-preservation, or so he thought. So let's get it straight. The scripture is clear. The world hates Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you something. Listen. The world hates Jesus Christ more than it loves you. The world hates Jesus Christ more than it loves you. And what that means is you have a choice. You either hate Jesus with them or you hide Jesus from them. That's the only way you're going to be accepted by them. You hate Jesus with them, you hide Jesus from them. I'm telling you now, both, both of those will land you in God's hell if you deny me you will be denied before the Father you cannot make an idol of men and their opinions about you And you will go through the experience similar to Moses. We're told of him in Hebrews 11. By faith Moses, when he was come to years. This is is what's happening to our young people. They're coming to years. Starting to make decisions for themselves. They feel themselves in a position where they can actually not take their parents' advice. The parents have to watch on that, that, that experience, that, that experience that every parent has to go through where they begin to wonder, do, do, I push my, do I push myself here or do I have to let go and let them make the mistake themselves so that they can learn? It's really tough. And the parents battle that over. Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. It 
is this vile world a friend to grace to help you on to God? No. It will take you in. It will chew you up. It will spit you out. And I'll not think one thing about it. You know, just another one in a long list of casualties that Solomon was all too familiar with and he is begging his son. When sinners entice you, when they come with their arguments, come along with us, consent thou not. May God bless his word. Let's bow together in prayer. As our heads are bowed before the Lord, as our eyes are closed, I want to speak again to those of you who are at a certain stage of life where you are integrating and stepping into the world a little more. I want you to do so very, very cautiously. I want you to be sober-minded. I know you're young. I know that there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful, there's a, one, there's a wonder and a joy about entering into adulthood. But there are very grave dangers as well. And this world, this United States of America, is becoming more and more vicious towards those that love Christ. And it's going to be hard for you to try and hide, to act like you love the Lord without them hating you. I want you as your head is bowed before God, I want you to resolve before God, I want you to resolve before your crucified Lord Jesus. As He died there on the cross for you, I want you to look and consider it by faith is the love of the world worth losing out with Christ? Father, we pray, help us tonight. None of us, not one of us, are immune from being taken in by the clutches of the world. Help us not to love the world Give us deliverance from the fear of man that bringeth a snare. Enable us to love the people that are in the world, to love them unto Christ, to love them for the sake of the gospel, to love them in all of their need, to reach them, to see them with pity and with mercy. But deliver us from going where they go and doing as they do and being as they are. God, save our young people. Have mercy on every last one of them. Keep them in the hollow of thy hand and help them to love Christ and all of his people. For those that are yet unconverted, save them, Lord. 
Hear these our prayers. Be with us all as we fellowship, as we enjoy the company of one another. Bless the food provided for those that go downstairs and go with us to our homes and strengthen all thy people for this week. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.